Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Joseph Bros Tito was a unique dictator. A man of war, he fought in pretty much every major conflict of the 20th century, from the Russian Civil War to the World Wars. And as a Cold War warrior, he led Yugoslavia with an iron fist, standing up to both Stalin and the West. So what made Tito the leader he became? And how should history remember his firebrand politics during the hottest days of the Cold War? I'm your host, James Padden Rogers. This is Warfare. And as part of our special Dictators miniseries, we're taking a look at Tito, the guerrilla fighter, revolutionary, and statesman. To take us through this history, we have Robert Niebuhr on the podcast. Robert has spent years working on Titoism and the politics of Yugoslavia, having studied in Croatia, including at the University of Zagreb. He spent many years in former Yugoslavia, and he's now at Arizona State University in the US. I know you're going to find this one fascinating. It has all the warfare staples of the World Wars and the Cold War, and if you want to investigate more on this period of history, well, you can now pre-order my new book, Precision, A History of American Warfare, where I track the American experience of war, weaponry, and technology from the First World War to the modern day. Just head over to my Instagram, at James Rogers History, and click the link in my bio, but make sure you use the exclusive code WARFARE to get 30% off the book. But now, here is Robert Niebuhr on Marshall Tito. Enjoy. Hi, Robert. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Good, and yourself? Yeah, good, thanks. I'm morbidly excited to get into the topic of Tito. I think it's an amazingly understudied topic, especially in terms of Titoism and his regime and his time in power, but also in terms of his personality, he's a fascinating figure. This is someone who fought in pretty much every major conflict in that region during the 20th century. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is, he fought in the First World War, then he fought in the Russian Civil War, then the Second World War, liberating, and then moving through to taking charge of the region, and then obviously maintaining in power into the late 70s, 1980 maybe, and this is someone who is a, a stalwart of, of European politics. Yeah, no, he was definitely around to see a lot, and he has a really colored history that has, has brought out a lot of opinions about him, right? He'd be this really polarizing sort of figure. But no, he was, at his death, famously, there were the largest gathering of world leaders and influential people at his funeral to send him off as a sign of respect, but he was obviously engaged in all these battles, as you say, right? He's in, in the Austro-Hungarian army. He's then captured by the Russians. He stays time in Russia through the Soviet period, learns a lot there about politics and power, and then comes back to be highly influential inside Yugoslavia. So really unorthodox for someone who grew up as a peasant in the Slovene-Croatian hinterland. Okay, so he had this 
typical dictator's upbringing, or at least how a lot of dictators like to paint themselves. They come from poverty, they rise up, they fight their way up. When you look at so many dictators that we've looked at during this mini-series, that's certainly the kind of boilerplate staple of how to become a dictator. But in Tito's case, it's true, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit about when he was born and the context in which he was born? I guess to go back a little further, the Balkans generally had been divided right, in this long history since the time of Rome in terms of who's controlling what outside force is exerting influence across the Balkan Peninsula from Greece into modern day Hungary, Austria, places like this. And so this sort of fractured history, I think, had been very much embedded in the psyche of a lot of folks. You see the Ivo Andrich, The Bridge on the Drina, famous novel that talks about this sort of historical quest of the Ottoman Turks in the region. And then you see more more recent things like the 19th century, the sort of the pan-Slavists and the Russian influence in places like Serbia, Bulgaria. A lot of the, this outside influence had been there. And in a lot of ways, people were forced, locals were forced to pick sides. And where, where Tito's born, again, this hinterland of Kumrovets is the name of the village, uh, hinterland Croatia, Slovenian uh, border of today. Two Slovene, the family had Slovene speakers, Croatian speakers, although again, that's also something that for us, we take for granted. Back then, it was maybe a lot more different, like the sort of as Dutch was to German and things like this. But the point being that he's entrenched in the Austrian control over the part of the Balkans. So there's a lot of tilt, I think, towards the sort of the Vienna pole, which will influence, I think, later with politics as well, as we talk about. So the way the Titoist ideology comes about, a lot of where they're drawing inspiration from, I think, is from the Austro-Marxists of uh, the late 19th, early 20th century. But he's there, again, the idea of the infrastructure is embedded with Austria-Hungary. The economy is built into this Austro-Hungarian, the larger economic system. And so you have someone looking for a better life. He wants to become a worker, you know, he wants to, to earn money, he has some odd jobs, he does these different things that he floats around. And when World War I comes around, he's in the Austro-Hungarian army. And doesn't really see as the sort of tensions, the legacy of World War I was such that the idea of finally overcoming that outside influence was, I think, a major thing in the Balkans. Serbs were on a quest to liberate their countrymen, as they called them. Croats were seeking to extricate themselves from Austrian control. And then a half a dozen more, right, of these sort of subgroups seeking independence. And so the World War I was a disaster, I think, for the Austro-Hungarian Empire in a lot of ways. But Tito emerges in this sort of sphere of ideas of national identity, independence, freedom, and trying to become independent actors. It's strange to think that Tito fought in the Austro-Hungarian army during the First World War. He is politically growing up in this crazy crucible of politics, of, of anarchism going on in the region during this time. He chooses to fight for the Austro-Hungarian Does he choose to fight for the Austro-Hungarian army or is he drafted in? But he's fighting in the, in the same army as Hitler during this time period. Do we know exactly what Tito did during the First World War? Yeah, it's been a lot written on that. A lot of things, too, that have come out. You, know, you sift through, you know, what, and this gets back to later questions of what's his sort of cult of personality? What did he, how did he brand himself and the sort of the hero worship and things? So you get a lot of, I think, polarizing information and things that say he was a key component of, and then others who say he was just a foot soldier who, upon surrender, went through the system and understood, perhaps was already enamored by ideas of worker 
enfranchisement and then understood the Bolsheviks as a path to realizing that. That's, again, one of these sort of stories. But he wasn't a key officer. He wasn't a key leader. He didn't mobilize men to uh, on the battlefield to come to some sort of momentous decision. But I think, he again, like a Hitler, like a Mussolini, he learned a lot. He learned a lot about the comradeship. He learned a lot about what it takes to survive in really grueling circumstances. And I think some of the things that he does in World War II and the decisions, which were really controversial, the idea of, and maybe we'll talk about this later, but the idea of, of saying, we will put up with Nazi reprisals as stiff as they are, because that is our path to success. I think that's hardened by this experience of World War I, where, again, he sees hardship, he sees struggle, and then it's the bonding of the men, like a Mussolini or Hitler would talk about in the same sort of way. That period fascinates me. How would you go for fighting for the Austro-Hungarian Empire during the First World War and then end up fighting for the Bolsheviks during the Russian Civil War? How does that transition take place? Is this an ideological transition that's going on in Tito's mind at that time? I have no doubt that Tito was an earnest communist in the sense of he understood the raw power aspect of it. He, he saw that firsthand with the Bolshevik takeover in the Soviet Union. And I think he really recognized that as a path forward. Again, later in the regime, there'll be a, a conflict there between the social democratic path and the sort of hardline sort of Soviet path. I think he believes in the internationalization. That was, I think that's what he saw in the Bolshevik, again, tying back to this idea that we are controlled by others. I think he bought in early on to the idea that this communist movement is not about one people oppressing another. This is about all of us coming to realize the same system, putting it into place, and then being equal. And that will stay with him throughout. That's a consistency I think is there throughout his regime, that that's what he sees as a liberating force that overcomes anything about I'm a Croat or I'm a Serb or I'm an Austrian or I'm Hungarian or any of this sort of stuff. That it this communist path, this ideology will be the thing that enables us to be equal with us. I think he sees that. I think he sees the, the way that that power unfolds or how that's manifested in the uh, Russian Civil War and then says, OK, that's how I'm going to go back to Yugoslavia and rearrange this sort of communist party and put it into practice. The Russian Civil War, of course, we move through that period you have the end of the Tsar's rule, but you then move through to this internal political struggle that then moves on to the Red Terror, of course, and, and all of the things that that brings for Russia during that period. How does Tito make his way delicately through this post-Civil War period, this broader interwar period, towards the point where he's in a position to lead the partisans during the Second World War to take on the Axis powers? No, it's a great question. Again, some of this is also shrouded in, I'd say mystery, maybe the best word, but people have argued on, the, on for one side staunchly and on the other side in another, just as staunchly. But the notion that Tito emerges into the interwar communist party of Yugoslavia and he takes control. And this sort of is a miraculous sort of thing. Like, how does this guy come back from the Soviet Union and talk about and wind up leading? And it's done in part because he uses some of the terror tactics. There had been a fractured party. Again, there's the social democratic strain where the leadership is talking about elections and having people vote for social welfare programs and economic equality that will then long term bring Yugoslavia into this sort of system and the folks who say no tomorrow. We storm 
And we storm the Capitol, we take it, and this is what we implement. He winds up purging a number of, again, some of this is shrouded in mystery, but he purges some influential folks in a war communist party, which was illegal, which was already underground, which he serves time in prison. It's this back and forth, right, where it's not like he just shows up and does it, but it's over the course of several years. And he wins over the main core of folks there. And it's part because they see as, I think they see him as someone who's taking hold of the situation. Again, not like in a hundred years, we'll have voted for this. It's no, we need an action plan that takes it and makes it happen. And I think that's something that the chaos of the interwar period, the sort of the discrediting of the traditional parties that World War I helped bring about, the discrediting of the right-wing parties that certain interwar policies had brought about. That, I think, gave a boost more generally to the left in Yugoslavia. But again, in, in Tito's case, him learning from the Red Terror and all that uh, allowed him to shave off opponents within the party and emerge as a main figure. Do you think that's what he was doing? Do you think that he saw Lenin, or is it documented that Lenin was an intellectual, ideological idol, not only in terms, of course, of communism, but also in terms of how you rule and how you implement this? Was he learning from the Red Terror? I think he did. I, and so the two parts of what you're just saying there, I think on the one side, I wouldn't call Tito an intellectual leader. And I don't mean that to insult him or something. I mean, there were folks in the Communist Party of Yugoslavia who were much more in touch with the theory behind what's going on. I don't think Tito operated on that level. I think Tito was much more the fella who said, this is how we implement. This is how we make people do it. So I think that what he learned from was the way that you put that power into practice and not so much the intricacies of the policies that were there. Well, he did have to put that power into practice as soon as you have to take on the might of the Axis forces. What sort of military leader was he? I hear he was pretty apt at his tactical expertise. He's gone down in history as quite a successful military leader based on, on guerrilla tactics. Is, is that how we should frame him? Was he a guerrilla fighter? In large part, I think that's the only way we can. There was not opportunities for open pitched battles. And I don't think he would have... I don't know. My guess is he wouldn't have done very well at an open pitch battle had he had, I don't know, Sherman tanks and Jeeps and all the rest of it. But I think that the occupation regime, though, was interesting in the fact that it... So the Nazis, obviously, and I, I spoke about the reprisals, it was harsh. Some of these... It was also harsh in World War I. And that's also... I, to, to look back, I think Tito also understood the Austro-Hungarian forces and the German forces that occupied Serbia in World War I also had, for every soldier killed, 50 peasants would be hung or something. That, that was already in, in place. The Nazis ramped that up. It was 100 to 1 is what they talked about doing. But the occupation regime was, I think, very disorganized and decentralized in a sense. You had, the Nazis were interested in the core resources and the core control of cities. They farmed out to the Italian forces along the Adriatic, the NDH, the Ustasha in Croatia, their allies in other parts, and they, the Bulgarians. The, there was a very fractured occupation regime that I think then enabled a guerrilla war to take place. And that was the sort of thing that allowed for the movement. So I think as him as a commander, it's a lot of back and forth. We'll battle here in Bos northern Bosnia, we'll retreat across the mountains, and we'll take refuge in central Bosnia for a few months, and then we'll figure out where we attack next based on uh, the sort of, based on what's available to us. That was a lot of how he led, and I think that was, you know, partly the, the way it had to be. But they really took, they had a boon 
in their ability to fight once the Italians collapsed. The Italian weaponry that Tito's forces were able to, the partisans were able to take over, was huge. And then allowed for allied supply routes as well to come in and aid him during the conflict. Do we have any major incidences of success that Tito had during this period that knocked the Axis back onto its heels? Are there any famous moments during the Second World War that Tito should be noted for in helping, for all intents and purposes, the Allied cause? Yeah, I think the simple answer would be yes, direct Nazi involvement had to increase over time because of Tito's resistance to surrender and his continued ability to fight back. They had to draw more resources into the Balkans. The big scheme of things, I don't think that really mattered in terms of the defeat of Hitler, but it was certainly something that was a part of hope. It was a huge propaganda victory for Tito, but I think it was also propaganda victories for the West. We could portray to the reading public, to the listening public, right? Whether it's the BBC or, I don't know, the New York Times or something, there is these people are fighting the Nazis. They're with us. They're doing dirty work for us. We should support them. And that was real. Definitively, I don't think it helped crush Hitler. But it helped pave the way for Tito's own regime to come to power after the Second World War and builds up this cult of personality, this reputation around him. So tell us about Titoism and how he starts to consolidate his power post-1945. Sure. So I think it's really interesting because, I mean, the idea that the cleavage between, say, the folks in the Yugoslav Communist Party who were more in line with the Social Democratic faction and those who were understanding the Soviet system as better, I think that was still there. I would say briefly that the experience of Yugoslav fighters, the larger experience more generally of the Spanish Civil War, and their resistance against the Nazis showed that action at fighting resistance was the sort of key to success. They don't back down from a fight. The fight pays off. We lost in Spain, but we gained experience. We beat the Nazis. We're now here in, in control. But with that said, that cleavage was still there. But the hardline Soviet perspective won and was in control at that point in early 1945-46. What they're doing is I think they say have a sense of mission. So that's the point of my first point. There's a sense of mission among the Yugoslav leaders that they're on the right side of history. I had done a, a paper years ago based on some things in the archive that in this early period as well, they had captured German soldiers and their sort of their camps that they set up for these prisoners of war were also set up to indoctrinate or denazify and indoctrinate with socialist principles. They wanted to, and in some of their quotes, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the document in front of me, but the idea that we're going to rebuild Germany in the proper image. We're going to be a part of the reconstruction of Europe. And that's as they build with these folks and, and move them forward. So there's a, a spirit of importance. There's a, a spirit of being on the right side of history. So what they did, though, is, so that's the, some background. In practice, they duplicated the Soviet Union. They said, we want big agriculture, we want heavy industry, we want to set up an economy that banishes the larger peasant base that we have, builds up cities, builds up our ability to, as they would say it, win a war against outsiders. They credited, I think, the Soviet victory in part to the idea that, wow, Stalin was awful, 
as maybe they wouldn't say that. Stalin was tough to his political opponents, is what they might say. But Stalin did make tough choices, but he also built an industry throughout the Soviet Union that allowed them to beat the Nazis. I think that's what they would have seen. That's what we need. I think they would have said the same thing. So it's very much a Soviet system in the earliest years. And the, another instance of this, beyond how they organize internally, is an interesting case with Albania. So they controlled, the Yugoslav communists controlled the Albanian Communist Party in the late World War II period and in the early post-war period. And again, there were differences there. There were factions. I mean, Enver Hoxha was not so happy about it, and some of his lieutenants were. But the point is that Yugoslav leaders set up joint stock companies. They sought to build infrastructure to link Albania into Yugoslavia and to have it be a satellite country. They didn't use the term satellite, but that's exactly what they were doing. So they were building, like the Soviets, like we're going to take Poland and it's going to become a part of our economy. They did it with Albania. They sought to take territory like Trieste from Italy, Klagenfurt and Southern Corinthia from Austria. So there was an expansionary policy as well in this early period. And it's a brutal expansion that happens during this period of time. Talk us about Tito's modus operandi of being a dictator. So our first episode of this miniseries was on Mao, perhaps the most brutal dictator ever in history. Millions and millions dead of his own people, partly deliberately, partly due to incredibly flawed agricultural policies. But when it comes to Tito, what was his plan? If I look back in my mind through the history, I recall that he deposed kings, removed and perhaps murdered religious leaders. Every element of power that could possibly go against him in the future was wiped out and annihilated. And was that all across Yugoslavia? Yes. So yes, there's on the one side, there's the positive sort of things that he was doing in this period. All the branding, all of the key marches and with banners and the, his bust on a poster or something and planting themselves at this space and then having a speech and convincing then people who would see this or read this in other parts of Yugoslavia. We're doing positive things. We're doing the good thing. But the more critical part of this, as you said in, in your question here, was the negative. And yeah, no, in these early years, Tito was as ruthless as anyone else in terms of taking political opponents and making sure they didn't cause any potential harm. So Goldie Autok was the famous island in the Adriatic, a naked island, right? It's this hot place where he would just dump these political opponents, and a lot of them wouldn't make it. <laughs> but it's this sort of place to punish political opponents. Also, the things like, and this has been contentious as well, but massacres of former, what he would call the collaborationists, right? At Bleiberg in Austria, right? Where the, the Allied armies turned back refugees who were fleeing Tito's takeover of the area, let's say Northwest Yugoslavia during the Cold War period. They, the Allied army said, no, we don't recognize that. You have to be repatriated back home. And once they were repatriated back home to Tito's forces, a lot of those folks suffered an, an ill fate, either imprisonment or death. So th th a lot of that happened for sure. And that early consolidation was based on a lot of the violence and oppression coupled with the public image of, hey, this is a positive thing, we're winning victories, we're doing the good fight. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts, it's about the incredible stories that shape our world. 
three times a week on my podcast. My expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you'll want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So for all intents and purposes, as the Second World War comes to an end, Tito enacts a purge in order to consolidate his power. And this must be something that is partly facilitated by the descending of the Iron Curtain, the rising of the Cold War, and some level of protection by Stalin. But Tito didn't always get along with Stalin particularly well, did he? No, I think there was a lot of issues where... And I, I've done more research on Yugoslavia, read what scholars say about what Stalin thought... I think my own sense of this is that Stalin was apt for his own power and keen on furthering that and not wanting to have anyone jeopardize that. And so when Tito is acting like a strong man inside Yugoslavia, purging political opponents, synchronizing the regime to his party, which is backed by a tremendous partisan army at this point in the late 1940s, mid to late 1940s, that's okay with Stalin. That's great, right? He's doing what needs to be done. When he starts doing things like bringing in Albania as a satellite, controlling the Albanian Communist Party, when he's aiding communists in Greece, when he's arguing for Trieste to become Yugoslavia, these are things that probably Stalin didn't care so much about, but Stalin worried about how the West would react to some of these things. And I think that's where you saw the perhaps jealousy, but also just a clear fear that, hey, I'm not Stalin. I'm not going to go to war with the West over something that this guy's doing in the Balkans. So there was a really stern words from the Soviets on cool down your foreign policy. He shoots down American planes that crossed into Yugoslav airspace. And Tito was unapologetic. And he was very much the strong man internally and externally. That threatened peace in terms of, I think, what Stalin's plan was and his idea of the post-war order. I mean, how bad does this really get? Is he exiled from Stalin's kind of broader spheres of influence? I know that he was, I mean, he was kicked out of the common form in the late 1940s. So this is very early on in, in terms of coming up against the USSR and what this broader Soviet Union is meant to be all about. He's starting to move away and cut his own independent path. This must have repercussions. It does. There's a point where I think you have Tito, and, and Tito was really afraid that he did not go to the Soviet Union ever. He would send someone else because he was afraid of being killed. And he understood what the Bolsheviks did in, in the early We would do the same. That's completely yeah. understandable. Exactly. So there's, I think there's this sense early on that when they begin to hear of the displeasure, there's a bit of confusion. You see this in, in the documents. The Yugoslavs don't understand why the Soviets are upset. 
And, and I think, again, they're blinded by the idea that they believe this earnestly and that they think they're doing the good work, that they're an extension of the Soviet foreign policy, and they don't get it. Vladimir Dedier, one of his confidants in this early period, goes at this precise time. In February of 1948, he ventures, Dedier ventures to India to visit the Indian, the Second Communist Party Congress and observe and perhaps give some influence. And there's other things that the suspicion that what he was trying to do, but foment rebellion and whatnot. But in his documents, in his diary from that trip, he says, in February, we began to hear stories about Soviet displeasure. And when he's there, he comments on things like, look, the Indian communists said, long live Tito. They didn't say anything about Stalin. Isn't that interesting? He writes this sort of thing down and he begins to see this sense of what is all this about? They're taking portraits of Tito down in Romania. What does this mean? What's coming for us? So when it does in June of 48, when the Soviets do banish him from the common form and, and basically say, basically the idea is if we catch you, you're a dead man, right? That sort of seals it. And the Yugoslavs say, we're not going to be under the control of someone else like we have been for hundreds of years. I think that kicked in as one of these foundational ideas of we thought we were getting into this ideology because it was going to liberate us. And now they're just as oppressive as the capitalists. And that sort of totally changes their worldview on things. And so in order to survive, Tito has to start treading what must be a very dangerous line. He starts to court relations with the West, whilst trying to not aggravate the Soviet Union too much. But he also pioneers this non-aligned movement. So this is broadly about, perhaps you can explain it far better than I can, but it's about uniting the third world. No, exactly. It's a long term. I think my own work on this sort of suggests to me that there's a period across the entirety of the 1950s where there's a sort of a struggle to figure out Okay, so if we can't be like the Soviets, what can we be like? And what does that mean in terms of our principles? How do we balance that against the real foreign threats that we face? What's the sort of mood in the broader world? Where do we fit in? Those questions and a lot more, I think, is what they were asking. On the internal front, the sort of the communists, like what, what's our ideology? They develop socialist self-management, which emerges formally in 1953, at the same time that the Yugoslav delegation goes to the Rangoon Conference of Asian Socialists in Rangoon, Burma, 1953 in January. They unveiled this policy that tries to differentiate their ideas of communism with what the Soviets had. And we can talk more about that, what that means, but they do this on this sort of global stage and they listen to what people in the third world, the decolonizing world, what they're talking about. They're tuned in to what's Nehru doing? What's happening in Indonesia? Eventually by 54, 55, they're interested in Egypt and what's happening with the coup there and Nasser's rise to power. And they're engaged in international conferences. They're hosting them, they're participating in them, they're gathering intellectuals. They're doing what the Soviets and the Americans were doing. And I think you see then by the end of the decade of the 1950s, there's a coherent policy centered on peace and equality that they're championing at the highest levels, the UN General Assembly, and so then their own non-aligned conference, which happens in Belgrade in uh, 1961. These things become the highlight of what I call, I co-authors in this next book, called it some high Titoism, 
right? This idea of the sort of peaceful global statesman. There's a lot more there. I don't know where, if you want to pick any, into any pieces of that. But For me, it's really interesting to see how he does navigate this very delicate, tense time in international politics. We were talking the other week about Robert Mugabe and how he had interesting ties to China and to North Korea in terms of actually training some of his most highly trained military personnel as well. But for Tito, that's too much of a a hot relationship. And I know that the North Korean leaders, Kim Il-sung, wasn't a a big fan of Tito at the time, because if you were a fan of Tito, then you'd be a fan of the fact that he was this revisionist communist who wasn't tied to the core devout Stalinist. And so he has to take this different route. And he starts to court favour with those who are more looking for independence from a colonial or an empiric rule. And this is where you turn towards a NASA or a Nehru. Is it better that we start to look at Tito as somebody who's a part of that broader post-colonial moment? Or do we still need to tie him to communism? Well, so it's interesting. I think there's a lot there, right? Ideologically, he will have some of the most intense conflicts with obviously the Soviets, but also the Chinese. And as you say, the North Koreans as well. Who... Because you'd think he'd get on with Mao, Robert. When you look at Mao, you look at the, the Bangdung Conference in 1955, policies of non-intervention and non-interference with the so-called Third World, as it was called at that time. It's these sort of things which aren't a million miles away from Tito. No, exactly. And there was a competition. One of the, so the one co-author on this upcoming book, Svonimir Stopich, has done a lot. He's lived in China, did his PhD in Beijing, and looked at a lot of the Chinese sources on this. And... It really is interesting. They, there was a lot. And the Yugoslavs were hopeful from the beginning that Mao would be, here he is fighting the Japanese, here he is. It's a Chinese Tito is what they're trying to see. And what changes, of course, China was tied, I think, to Soviet support. They were really needed the Soviet support and didn't want to veer from that early on. Later, of course, they did. But there's the sense of they're always afraid of what's happening in the East, right? And they're always in competition there. The Chinese have their what, Afro-Asian People Solidarity Organization, something I think it's APSO was the acronym. It's a competitor to non-alignment, putting these same ideas forward. So the Yugoslavs saw themselves as in competition with these, with the Soviets and the Chinese. But I think what they did very well, and this is where they tapped into the third world movement, I think excellently, was the Yugoslavs said, look, what the Soviets are doing, what the Chinese are doing, is they're trying to control you. We're not. We're a country of, at the end, it was 26 million, I, I want to say maybe 16, 17 million earlier on, right? We never had any colonies. We don't have any colonial ambitions. We're here as an honest broker. And they pointed, the evidence wasn't just, look at us, we have no power. It was more like a specific examples like the Korean War, where the Yugoslavs had a seat, temporary seat in the Security Council. And they used that and they used their votes and they used the platform to say, this is external aggression. This is inspired by the Soviets to control someone else. And, and they, they repeated this so often as they went to these countries across Africa and Asia. If you get tied in with the Soviets, they will dominate you. And I think that message to folks who were just coming out of a colonial relationship with France or Great Britain that resonated. We don't want to be controlled. And I think that they hammered on that time and again. They observed, constantly looked at 
foreign affairs and the Taiwan Straits and the Seattle Conference, the Seattle Treaty, all these, and they commented on it, and not just for domestic consumption, but within international sort of reach. And they always tied this to, they want to control, we're for coexistence, non-alignment, non-interference, equality, freedom, all the sort of principles and more, right? That's what they really stayed true to, and they, they tied to that consistently through the duration of the regime. And that, that's an understatement, isn't it, Robert? This is somebody who is challenging Soviet interventions around the world publicly and at great risk. So when it comes to, to 1968, in alliance with Romania, Tito leads this opposition to the Soviet intervention in Czechoslovakia. This must have created ripples across the world. It did. There were a lot of folks who, it's a, a fellow like, like Nehru, who was perhaps the most unwilling of the non-aligned so trio, right? Nasser Nehru and, and Tito Nehru was probably the most hesitant to form any sort of formal alliance. He also understood when the Soviets go into Hungary, and then later on, obviously, it's not Nehru anymore, but the Czechoslovakia, they, this use of force, this oppression is something that will be like, okay, yeah, Tito, you're right. We need to take this position. It's wildly powerful. To, I think that stands by, by itself. The, the rhetoric is perfectly in touch with the mood of the time. And for the audience, he's, Tito was putting it out there too. I think probably one of the biggest failures, though, is that rhetoric is not backed up with real power, right? In a way, there was, I think, great success once the Cold War led towards detente, right? After the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Soviets and the Americans cooled things down, and that, that was a big victory in a lot of the cases with, this, with the Titoist rhetoric from the years prior. But there was no other follow-up plan. There was no other okay, now we'll lead economic development, or now we'll help with, there was nothing there. So a country that would say, yes, you're right. You're great. I believe in you. There was never then any connection beyond that. And is, is that due to the fact that he just didn't have the economic power? Or was he just too busy trying to sort out his domestic politics? Is that where Yugoslavia's money was going? Was he investing back into his own people? He did, yes. There was an investment. There were also other economic issues in Yugoslavia at the time, right? Once Yugoslavia took this sort of in-between path, they opened up economic relations with the West. And in a sense, I think that was also one of these things that, that crippled them once the economy of the West had a downturn, in this, with the oil shocks, especially in the 70s, right? So you had unemployment, you had economic sort of issues, you had a lot of the economy in the 60s and 70s, relying on money from abroad, like guest workers in Germany and Austria, sending money back to Yugoslavia. But with that said, so there was investment as, as much as they could. Uh, there was industrial development. But I think a lot of what we see in terms of Titoist foreign development was in the economic arena. It was, let me send experts, let me send engineers, let me send other experts to help you build a dam or build roads and things of this nature that, that was good. But again, it wasn't in the sort of depth. That was it. They never really, they sold arms, they gave arms, but they could never do that in the way that the Chinese could or the Soviets could. And in that sense, they didn't try to supply some revolutionary faction somewhere with all of its guns. 
But with those expertise, did you see a, a major improvement in the infrastructures domestically in Yugoslavia during this period under Tito's rule? Is this a time that's looked back on as a time of great investment for the country and perhaps something that still has a, has a, has a legacy across the various former Yugoslavia countries today? I think there was. I mean, there was there's a disparity between, say, north and south. The northern part of Serbia, parts of Croatia and Slovenia have more industry, have more just manufacturing, more better roads, better bridges, things like this. The, the famous Zagreb-Belgrade Highway, the Brotherhood and Unity Highway, as they called it, right? It was a big deal. It allowed for a lot of easier transportation across across the country. The southern part of Yugoslavia, though, was always the part that was left less developed. As you got into Bosnia and especially Kosovo, Macedonia, southern Serbia, Montenegro, the geography was just a problem in parts, in some parts of this development. And in other parts, it was those areas still engaged in agriculture and there wasn't much more to do than say, we're going to grow tobacco in this part of southern Serbia and that's it, right? That's what it's good for. So it was unequal. It was uneven across Yugoslavia, which created the sort of problems that would emerge in the 1980s specifically, where you had folks say the republics, a little bit more into sort of the, the details, of, but it was a federation that the republics then received tax money from the federal government to then do different things economically. And there was a big cry that, oh, our money, Slovenes would say, our money is going towards this pit this money pit of endless construction in southern Serbia, why are we doing that? And this sort of battle becomes, I think, a lot of this in terms of let them have their own tax money and do their own thing. Why should we subsidize it? And you had battles emerging because of that. And isn't that something that's often overlooked in this history? The fact that Yugoslavia became a republic under Tito. This is something that after he was granted an unlimited term in true dictatorial form in, in 1963, he then goes on to serve until his death in 1980. But in 1971, something quite special happens in terms of a, a dictator. He doesn't announce someone that will take his place as a, as a single leader upon his death, but he creates this council of, is it 14 presidents of the regions? Rotating presidents, decentralized power, and they pull back in some respects, right? And by 1974, that all that's solidified in the Constitution, their fourth, right, Constitution in, across the period. They also see how untenable it is in some respects, so that the army faces the same sort of decentralization. And there's a lot to go in the weeds with this, but the, the point is that initially, the idea was to have a decentralized army and, and a territorial defense, like a National Guard, sent. And then 1968 proves to them, no, we need a single army that will fight pitched battles. So the army uses that the doctrinal change to say, let's rein in the decentralized funding and the decentralized networks of command and instruct to then centralize everything under our direct, the general staff. So the army does it best. Other institutions of the government try to do it as well. But what we see in, in the 80s is a drift towards the republics taking more power for themselves at the expense of the Federation. And yeah, that, that's because Tito doesn't, he, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't explain this. If he thought this was going to just work or if he was naive on this, or if he thought the legacy of partisan struggle and the legitimacy of their foreign policy was going to carry them through. I, I don't know what he was thinking on that. But Is it safe to say that, that after this period, you start to see the 
the rumblings, the, the collapse of Yugoslavia, something that, of course, is, is very much hastened by the end of the Cold War and the, and the collapse of the Soviet Union. But when you look at what Tito left, I mean, it's very admirable to say that it's almost a kind of a next level of democracy he's putting into place. You've got more representation. You hope it obviously binds these nations together. But is it because Tito didn't set a clear, legitimate leader to take control? Is it perhaps because of this that you see so much contestation between the, the former countries of Yugoslavia today? Is this Tito's legacy? Is it instability in this part of Europe? I think that's right. There's, I would say one of the things they failed at Again, whether it's putting a single leader up for the control after Tito, but or not, the this the, a robust system of checks and balances wasn't in place. There was so in the 1980s when there's you know, economic downturn, the IMF doesn't want to give any more loans, and oh, what do we do? Yugoslav leaders say, what what do we do now? And republics say, I'm not going to subsidize the poor, so we're going to hold on to our money and we're going to ignore the law. So we're going to ignore the Constitution. We're going to ignore the Supreme Court. We're not going to, right? So this sort of, the breakdown is that then once one of these republics takes these steps that's in, in contradiction to the Constitution, there are no repercussions for that. And so then, it's like, oh, okay, we'll do that too over in this next. So there's a chain reaction that the Federation then, what Tito sort of bequeaths, is really just fiction. And then we can make a new you know, what we want. Like that was the sort of the biggest sort of error there is that there were the, the checks and balances, the system of enforcement wasn't really there. And, and there was no, I think popular support was also not there anymore, right? Non-alignment as a legitimizing force for a lot of folks, I think had fizzled by the early 1970s and the army was controlled by veterans from World War II who looked at this partisan struggle in, as this sort of founding idea and that people under 50 just had no connection with it. They didn't see that, oh, okay, yeah, grandpa fought the Nazis and this was great and this led to... They didn't see a tangible, I'm unemployed, I have a degree and I'm driving a bus or I can't get a new apartment. Those sort of things then trumped any sort of idea of the struggle that we had. So people also lost faith, I think, and then grew, more animus grew between uh, folks in different republics because of then the, the rhetoric that came forward in the, in the 80s. And of course, I'd, I'd say there, Robert, I'd say then the rest, as they say, is history, but it, it's not history. All of this that we've been talking about very much informs exactly what is going on in the region today. And, and perhaps we can explain exactly what's been going on over the last 30 years. You think of wars of independence in Croatia. You've got genocides, massacres in Bosnia. Just think of, of Srebrenica. You've got wars with Serbia. All of this turmoil, this internal wrangling stems, in part at least, from that Tito period. And, and so thank you so much for explaining the man himself, his origins and his ideology, but also that impact that he had on the region and that impact and legacy he still has today. You've got to tell us, Robert, where can we read more about this? There's, the literature is not as robust as I would like. <laughs> Yugoslavia has fallen out of favor among universities. After the wars in the 90s, there was a, an uptick. But there's some good works out there on the Yugoslavia. There's some new things coming out by scholars like Jovan Javoski in Serbia. I have an upcoming book coming out on Yugoslavia, 
the non-alignment and Tito's Eurasian Gambit, things like this. We very much look forward to your new book and we'll have to get you back on the podcast. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War, and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day, from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross, and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.